you still have that feeling like, man, what's going on? I, you know, I was used to being by his side constantly. And it was hard for Paul to kind of adjust back to normal life, albeit work, family, household things, because it's one thing that never leaves your mind. This is TBI, Talking Brain Injury from Brain Injury Alliance Colorado. I'm your host, Phil, a four-time recipient of brain injuries I don't even remember, plus a whole bunch I kind of do remember. In this episode, I talk with Paul and Erica about that phone call a parent never wants to get. The phone rang and it was my my oldest son and just, you know, basically hysterics erupted. He was saying, get to the hospital as fast as you can. It's Dylan, it's bad. All this happened in the early days of the COVID pandemic. This complicated everything. The first confusing hours in the ER, the first harrowing days in the hospital, the first and the third procedures, the ensuing weeks of recovery at Craig Hospital in Denver. None of it was easy and Dylan's parents bore the brunt of it. As Paul says, It all came at you like a horror movie and just you were kind of walking through the steps. Paul and Erica shared the other side of TBI. What happens to your loved ones when they get that one fateful phone call? Special this month, you get two podcasts, a two for one. Find the other podcast that I have this month about a story that is similar to Dylan's. It's from Zach who fell in a climbing accident and tumbled down the flat irons in Boulder, which changed his life and his parents' life forever. Find that one right now on the podcast homepage, TBI Talking Brain Injury from Brain Injury Alliance, Colorado. It's Phil with the BIAC Podcast, TBI Talking Brain Injury, and today I'm joined by Paul and Erica. Paul and Erica, great to have you here on Zoom. Thank you. Great to be here. And tell me, where are you all from? Uh, you're not here in Colorado, are you? No, we're from Northern California, outside of Sacramento. All right. Now, tell me your ties to Colorado, though. Um, you've spent some time here. Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, Dylan, after he suffered his traumatic brain injury, once he was uh, advanced enough, um, we managed to get the our insurance to uh, let him go to Craig Hospital. Which uh, was no easy feat, but... <laughs> correct. Correct. It was a battle, but we got him there. And, um, you know, that the wonderful staff there, um, you know, our journey may have been a little different than a lot of people. Um, Dylan suffered some setbacks while he was there, um, but the Craig Hospital staff taught me and Dylan's mom um, really how to care for him. And really, when even when our time at Craig was done due to insurance, um, we were able to take a lot of their ideas. And when we got him home and, and keep working with him right. to get the amazing results we're getting with him. Great. So setting you two up, well, you three up for future success. Now, tell me about Dylan. How old is he? Dylan's 21 now. He was uh, 17 when he... Uh, a month shy of his 18th birthday. Right. When he uh, jumped on a longboard skateboard and went down a hill one night without a helmet on. It was uh, right after COVID hit. And uh, so he was bored on a Tuesday night and uh, and he, you know, crashed and, and suffered a, a severe traumatic brain injury. Yikes. I'm so sorry to hear. I, and like you said, right before his 18th birthday. Now, I, I guess, tell me, was Dylan... Um, Oh, was he into skateboarding, all that sorts of things, just in the past anyway? Not really. Dylan uh, is uh, was a uh, high-level football player. He, uh, We were actually, at the time, weighing scholarship offers. It was uh, it was early May, so he was about to wrap up, about to graduate, wrap up his senior year. Uh, we had visited uh, a few colleges that had made him some football scholarship he offers. He kind of settled on one. Yeah, he was probably the next day yeah. we were going to talk to the coach and he was he was probably going to commit to go to the one school and uh and then instead i made a phone call to the coach saying we couldn't you well, know we, we couldn't the keep hospital. the meeting yeah. yeah because uh you know dylan was fighting for his life yeah share as much or as little as you like about tell me about you know the day of the accident and the days after being a parent what you what you went through uh, you know what you remember what sticks in your memory uh, I gotcha. And I, well, it's the phone call nobody ever wants to get, you know, for us, it was, uh, it was 1045. Yeah. At night. So we had already been asleep for a little bit and, um, the, the phone rang and it was my, my oldest son and just, you know, basically hysterics erupted. He was saying, get to the hospital as fast as you can. It's Dylan. It's bad. Um, I'm sorry. I still get a little emotional yeah, with it. Was... Um, you know, it's just that, horrifying call and we were about 20 minutes away from the hospital so uh you know we jumped up got dressed and and got there as fast as we could even showing up not really understanding what was going on um you know dylan got lucky in a lot of ways that night because uh where he crashed was not far from a uh el dorado county fire department and so he had two friends with him 
the friends called 911 and the uh, medical staff, the first ambulance was there within literally within minutes. And then we have since gone back and met that crew that was on the scene. We took Dylan back. He was walking. Yeah. In a, in a triumphant return a, a year and a half later. But that night they recognized how bad it was for him. And um, I, they say the um, typical goal on a traumatic scene is to have the patient underway within 10 minutes. Uh, and I think I think they were like three minutes, if I if I remember correctly. Um, they quick loaded him up and they got him off to the hospital and yeah. they took we him. We had to- a local hospital and they ended up taking him to the trauma center, which was further into Sacramento. But mm-hmm. they knew that it, he needed to go to a high level care that could deal with his injury. Right. They had a neuro intensive care unit. So he was whisked right to the right hospital with doctors on staff and Within an hour of his crash, he was actually in surgery to have his first uh, skull plate removed. Wow. So as parents, I mean, like you said, just the call that you'd never want to get. And then the, the, the confusion about what's happening. You know, like you said, you would like, we got to go to the hospital. Still don't know what was going on. Um, uh, tell me about, well, yeah, yeah, well, tell uh, me, yeah, yeah. Tell me about, you uh, know, the, the days after. Well, w- one of the things that very night when the phone call came over, Um, Paul had answered the phone and all I could hear was mumbled kind of yelling um, from Matthew, uh, Dylan's older brother in the background. And and Paul just jumped up and started getting dressed. I'm still totally confused as to what's happening. I just start I see it's not good. And I just start putting on clothes and we're just, you know, wrapping up and getting there. And like we said, it was COVID. So that night we spent. It was by it was midnight almost by this point, and we're just standing in the parking lot of the trauma center because we couldn't even go inside. Right. The hospital rules at the time were um, only to allow one person in at a time. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we we took turns. Dylan's mom uh, and Dylan's stepdad were there and they could be in the lobby sometimes. And then we would have to be in the parking lot. It would be uh, uh, Erica and I, along with uh, our oldest son, Matthew, and uh, uh, my other daughter, uh, Gabby, who's uh, also older than Dylan, right? Also older than Dylan. So we, we stood in the cold of the parking lot, just waiting for news as, as to what was going on during his first surgery. Yeah. We spent the entire day there and into the morning. Um, and then, kind of just kept trying to figure out a rotation with his mom um, on who was going to be with Dylan over the next couple of days, but it was absolute chaos. They didn't really have a lot of answers for us. We just kind of kept getting no answers, if that makes sense. They would, you know, just, well, we don't know. It's a wait and see. And Paul had asked a doctor at one point, is this life threatening? And she's kind of like, well, yeah. As if you knew that this was life threatening, that, that you, you were just, like you said, still not sure exactly what had happened, just gotten not even able to go inside the hospital. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was very, I mean, like I said, it's all came at you like a horror movie and just you were kind of walking through the steps, um, as well as we had to start to think in the background, in the back of our heads. Uh, letting our family know what's going on right. right now. It's middle of the night. I'm from the East Coast originally, so my family is is all back there. So there's a three hour time difference because um, we knew Dylan's two friends were there, and you know, this day and age, uh, stuff's going to get said on social media. They're you know they were they were great boys. They did exactly what they needed to do to save Dylan's life. But I was just afraid it was going to make Facebook or Instagram or something was going to get out there. My you know my folks were in their 70s at the time you know back east i didn't want them to learn about it through social media so we had a while as we stood out in the parking lot uh waiting to hear we were also making phone calls to family members to to let them know what's going on wow just an incredible situation and, and you two as parents and uh, erica so uh step stepmother right yes okay so, but as parents um doing all that you can to learn more about what actually happened to your son, but then also try to like navigate, well, what comes next? When did that start going through your mind? Is it like, okay, well, what's coming next for Dylan? That was actually, I mean, really the, the next question kind of came a little further down because he, he had his first surgery to remove one skull plate. Then we had to wait a while to see if that would alleviate the brain pressure and swelling enough. And so then I was it the same day or the next, the day, next yeah. day, then he had to have the second skull plate removed. So it was just this constant evolving, like life threatening situation. And that lasted for days in the beginning. 
um, not knowing, you know, if he was even going to be okay, if he was going to live to the next day or what have you. And so that we didn't really get to ask or even think about the next until sometime down the road. And then, then it was a little bit of chaos because we were trying to do everything in our power to give Dylan the best care and the best chance. And we, and all we ever really got was, we don't know. We, it's severe. It's bad. Um, he may never walk again, talk again, live on his own, go, go to college, have a family. I mean, the outcome was dire and it was hard to hear, obviously as a parent. Um, so, so that was definitely difficult. We, um, one thing we did do well, we, we worked with the hospital then we, when he was out of surgery. All right. What, what can we do as far as being with him? And it ended up there, you know, COVID rules changed throughout this, but at this point, well, and because he was um, 17. yeah, because he was 17, they said um, mm-hmm. he's allowed to have one parent in the room with him at a time. Uh, that's it. Just one All person things. and one at a time, but it can be 24 hours a day. So, um, Dylan's mom and I were able to get, we were the two that were approved. So um, we broke the day into 12 hour shifts and she would sit in the room with him for 12 hours. And then I would come in relieve her. We couldn't even be in the room together to relieve each other. We had to meet in the lobby of the hotel and then, hospital. and uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the hospital. <laughs> and then, um, and then go back up to him to be by his side. So um, now during that time, right, it gets you're in the room by yourself. You don't understand what's going on. All the machines are beeping and you're following brain pressure numbers, which I never understood before. So I'm learning about it at the same time. I, I see what's going on with him. Um, Erica had told me to keep a journal. So uh, I had never really journaled before in my life. Well, because but- he was he was in the room by himself for so long and he couldn't text. He couldn't call. He was just alone with his thoughts and worries. And so I had suggested to write him down. So every day I sat there um, with him, I would, you know, of course, pay attention to the doctors and the nurses and interact there. But then I would take some time every day and journal and, and write out what I was going through, uh, what I was thinking, what was going on with him. Um, we I did that for um, months and months, you know, as, as we went through this process. And in the end, we uh, we took that journal. It took a, a year after I stopped journaling, and then I was able to go back and read it again. Which was so very difficult. Yeah, without, very, very difficult. <laughs> and, we, and we turned it into a book. And um, um, the book's titled Be At My Side, um, A Father's Journey Through His Son's TBI. And um, it really just explains, I could have never remembered what I was thinking at the time, right? Because it's it's so traumatic and right. so mm-hmm. emotional. You, you just lose it. Your brain, you know, kind of fades it out after time. So, but I had written it and every day I've tracked it. It's like you asked the question, um, you know, what were we thinking down the road in recovery at that point, those first three weeks or whatever, um, we couldn't even think of recovery. Yeah. We were just trying to make sure he lived almost hour to hour, minute to minute. Well, and I remember one of the days Paul was in the hospital and he was able to sneak out of the room because the doctors had come in. And he was making a phone call to me and he said, Dylan's going to need, you know, another serious surgery. And he goes, what should I do? You know, because it, it's life threatening and he has to make this decision by himself. And I said, uh, you, there's no answer to that. How do you say yes or no or what have you? And Paul, you know, in the journal, he he did write it down. But he told me later that there was a line of nurses and doctors and staff that that came to him sitting in the chair and having him sign waivers to that his son may not survive this procedure you have to sign here you know this and that you have to sign here and it and all the while his head's spinning he hasn't slept it's it was it was tough so in the end did he have three procedures well he had multiple procedures in that hospital at uc davis i i he had two surgeries to remove uh, his uh, skull plates. So mm-hmm. he had both sides done. Um, he did later have another surgery because he was having um, vascular um, spasms in his brain, which ended up causing most of the damage. So right. his his brain damage ends up being spread throughout his brain because those spasms of the, uh, of the blood vessels were, of course, everything they were spasming, it was limiting the blood flow. Um, so he had a, uh, a separate procedure for that where they actually sent a catheter to the brain and delivered some medicine directly in 
you know, into the brain uh, that ended up stopping the spasms. And, and then later on, he had to do the prosthetics. And then- right, right. Now, later on, when we got him, he spent three weeks at UC Davis. Mm-hmm. Then we, our, our insurance was uh, Kaiser Permanente. So they moved him to a Kaiser facility uh, where he spent 10 weeks in the, in the hospital. And we kept up this same kind of vigil uh, 12 hours a day by his, by his bedside, uh, even into that. Now, when we got to the Kaiser facility, COVID had lessened a little bit. We could get his brother and sister in a little bit to spend some time with him. I, I was able that? to finally see yeah. him. Yeah. Just family members, but oh, we snuck a friend or two in yeah. to try to help. Um, but then, you know, later on, there's more procedures because he has to have the skull plates back in. And when they did that, we were already in Colorado, but then he got, infect- he got an infection. Um, so he had to have another surgery, had them both removed again. Then go through six weeks of antibiotics. And that one Craig, yeah, right? right, and then have prosthetic skull plates put in. So um, the surgeries were uh, a lot. Well, and then <laughs> he had blood clots. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just was thing after thing. It's like every time you think he's going to get better, something bad happened. Or um, on the road to healing. It we it didn't feel like we were ever getting to that point because there was always a setback. And through it all, like you said, Paul, you were keeping this journal, try, trying to write down as much as you could as about well what you were going through as a parent. Yeah. And I had, again, I'd never experienced it before, but the emotional outlet that the journal became, it really helped me focus my thoughts and get, and I could go back and read a day before, or I could, you know, see where I was, or it just helped me get it out again, because I was there when I, when it was my turn to be in the room, I was there by myself except for Dylan and, and the occasional doctor. Um, so it's a lot of time for your brain to go in dark places. And, uh, you know, uh, when you really have no idea, nobody has an idea um, whether or not, one, he's going to live, and two, what kind of quality of life he could right, possibly right. have. And, you know, that's from just on the cusp of going to college to this, it's it's uh, it's a big fall. It's a big, uh, you know, life uh, hurdle. To, to get through. And that, that journal really kept me focused and, and kept going. And like I said, although it's, it's bad at times, you know, I have, I have some family members that won't read the book because they said it's too yeah. sad. <laughs> they, you know, they're, they get they too they emotional. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, but at the time, those are what my thoughts, what I was really going through and what I was really thinking. And, um, you know, well, we just want what's best for Dylan, but it's impossible to know what that is. We, um, yeah. When we were at that Kaiser facility, this super heroes of couple from the same town we were in, which is Folsom, California, um, they reached out to us and uh, through a mutual friend, they had had a son who suffered a spinal injury and he was here in California at the time. And they ended up, they researched and they found a way to get Kaiser Permanente insurance to send him to Craig Hospital. And this is the that's the first we ever heard of Craig Hospital, because, of course, we want whatever's best for Dylan. We know at some point this is going to be rehab here of some kind. Um, so that's what put Craig on the radar for us. And now they they said it wasn't easy. Um, they, you know, they had Kaiser also and they had a fight with them to well, get him there. And so, they gave us the, this trifecta of things to, to do in order to get your insurance to kind of do what you want them to do. Yeah, they, they said there's three things insurance companies hate. Yes. Uh, spending money, lawsuits, and bad press. So in order to get them to do number one, you have to threaten number <laughs> two and number three. <laughs> so um, <laughs> but, but given, again, given COVID in the situation, this kind of gave, you know, our family members some t- something to do. Yeah. Right. So we said, yeah, all right. You know, we did. Um we contacted the local newspaper, the Sack Beat, um, an awesome young uh, writer from there. Who had actually covered Dylan, a lot of Dylan's high school football career because um, our, the program that Dylan was in here in Folsom, California, is actually well-renowned through the state. So um, it gets it gets a lot of notoriety. So he had done a lot of previous coverage on Dylan even specifically. So All right. Yeah. So they called and they wrote, wrote an article uh, in the sports section with the big, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
big picture of Dylan. And then um, we started an online petition is one thing this family recommended we do um, to send that said, uh, you know, Kaiser permanent, they send Dylan to Craig hospital. And that was gathering signatures uh, by the thousands. And it, you know, ended up people from other countries were signing it. Uh, and then we did my our oldest was in law school. So he contacted some of his professors uh, and they said they would help us. Um, if there's a decision, at some point you have to ask your insurance to send him there and they can say yes or no. If they say no, they have to give it to you in writing and that's where the legal process can start. Um, so uh, we did while we were in the hospital. I told them we were going to ask for Dylan to go to Craig. Uh, I got, they had this stories in the book, my, my wife's smiling, but I got a very abrupt no, super rude way to say it to a father, his son. Uh, I didn't handle that well at the time. Um, a couple of expletives, but yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Tell me about it because I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, insurance companies. I know people hit brick walls with insurance companies, and they feel like there's literally no way around that brick wall, over it, under it. Everything you try to do, you just hit that wall. Well, when you hit the wall, you said, "Forget yep. you." <laughs> yeah, I am going through this wall. When they say no, it's a firm no. And you have to be willing to say, okay, let me talk to somebody above you. And you kind of just keep going up that ladder until you get a yes. And it's not, it's not easy going yeah. until the. Well, it's that, that's that three pronged approach they gave us. And that's when it, it really, you know, kicked in. We had, uh, you know, my, my sister is a nurse back in Pennsylvania and she was doing statistical research as to why Craig is a better place for Dylan to go than a Kaiser facility here they had craig hospital has a program uh just for teenagers who suffer traumatic brain injuries that you know fit perfect for what we wanted for dylan hey it's our boy right we're gonna do whatever we can to uh to get him the best care that we can so we started down this road and then you know, we already had the newspaper article um uh, we did get the we got a letter that said Dylan was not going to Craig. He was going to um, a Kaiser facility, which is still a good facility. Right. For sure. And then um, uh, I did, I got a phone call from a, a higher up ombudsman from Kaiser. And uh, uh, she, I, I explained yeah. to her yeah. that, you know, we, we weren't going to stop. We were going to refuse to go to that place. We were going to go back to the newspaper and tell them, okay, the petition didn't work, you know, so there's going to be the bad press. Um, we're going to challenge it in court. And then within a couple hours, I got a call back from her that said, all right, Dylan's been yeah. approved to go to Craig <laughs> Hospital. All right. How did you feel about getting that big win finally? You'd been through so much, not only through the insurance companies, but again, the thing that I just uh, hear all the time is that it's one thing to fight insurance. It's the other thing that at the same time, I'm just trying to manage my life, my right. you know, my family member who's been injured or maybe even my own injury. And here I am fighting you know, for the care that I feel like I need. Yeah, it's exasperating because even though it kind of gives you a, a different place for your your brain and emotion to focus, it is one more thing you don't need. And it is very daunting and difficult and frustrating because you're already heightened emotions, whether it's angry that this happened to your kid, you know, obviously sad, and devastated that it happened to your child. Um, but then to have, you know, grown adults that very likely have children of their own and to look you in your eyes and say, nope, we're not doing that because it's not cost effective. That is very angering. Yeah, I guess I was naive, right? I was what I would say. I didn't realize it would be that big of a fight to get what what we needed. You know, um, I, we, I've never dealt with anything this serious. Um, it would just it sort of shocked me in a way that hey, this is what we have to do. But I said we had our family and friends, the outpouring was incredible. On on a on another note, when you mentioned friends, um, the communities got together and through my people I work with and the football team Dylan was on, um, we have two households, right? Because Dylan's mom's in one house and, and we're in another one. Mm -hmm. And and Dylan has many brothers and sisters via step or yeah. immediate. And mm -hmm. so it was a lot to manage, but but the friends and co-workers set up meal trains or what, yeah, whatever you call them through different services or some just random themselves. We went 13 weeks, both houses, and we never cooked a dinner. Um, every single day, somebody delivered food or sent gift cards oh, or, right. right. <laughs> uh, it was absolutely incredible because it just took that 
that weight off. You know, I'm doing the 12 hour shifts and Erica can't be there. Um, all the other kids, the their life is upside down, those. right? Because all the stuff we used to do, it's all on hold. So yeah. um, it was that kind of support was just amazing. And it, 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 given COVID, that's what could be done, right? No, we couldn't have very many uh, visitors. We didn't want to didn't want to have too much contact outside of the hospital because I didn't want to get COVID. Well, we, and we were even nervous for ourselves and our other children because if they would be around their friends to be exposed to COVID and then bring it home and then we would be exposed and then we would be exposing Dylan and it was life-threatening. It was it was everybody's life was put on hold for sure. Yeah, just those layers on layers. But I mean, you know, for, for as... As frustrating as it was with the insurance companies, I mean, it's encouraging to hear the way that that community and the people around Dylan came together to help him out. Like you said, didn't have to cook a meal for weeks at a time because, well, there was a lot of love pouring out for Dylan. It really was. Yeah, there there really was. And, you know, eventually we did. So then we thought we had this you know, kind of glimmer of hope. We, we had had the the horrible diagnosis we had a, a a doctor give us all the bad news about what dylan would never do and he may never wake up and um or vegetative yeah, state or- right it might be mm-hmm. permanent he may stay like that so um every time we got a little win a, a little something it was like you know we're building up from the ground and, and we can do this um you know the setbacks then were that was the emotional roller coaster. He began to wake up when he was at this Kaiser Hospital because he has to be a certain uh, amount of alertness in order to go to Craig. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, they have these stages they call, and he has to make the certain stage until he can go because otherwise you're not really doing rehab. Right? You're just just caring for him. So um, he but he began to wake up and interact. And uh, I, m- I remember the day he tracked with his eyes, followed me around the room. Yeah, it was so simple. By interact, just... we mean he would open his eyes or he could maybe raise a finger or things like that. It was there was not talking. There was not, you know, answering questions, things like that. He was obviously tube fed catheter monitors everywhere. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was just it was painstakingly slow. But every now and then we get a little win. Now, unfortunately, what would be crushing then is when that win gets taken away, right? When he has a setback. Um, that all of a sudden he's back to being, you know. Yeah, that he was, and... wasn't doing, he's not doing what he was doing, you know, maybe a week ago. Um, why? And again, it's one of those things with the brain. Nobody can really tell you why. They, you know, they they, they try and they, they look for different reasons and try different things. But um, that's why we wanted to get to Craig uh, so bad because they are the world experts, right? They they would know it. And when we did get there, uh, we did. It was 10 weeks in that hospital. So it was 13 weeks after the accident. Okay. Um, we finally get him to, to Craig. And you, you can see a difference. You can see the attitude there. Um, you know, they have a belief. They, they believe in themselves. And there was a lot of encouragement that and they're we very felt. well trained specifically on brain injuries or spinal injuries. Right. So no promises, right? Nobody could say, "Hey, we're going to get him to this or that," because that doesn't work that way with the brain. Um, but positive outlook, right? Like, hey, this could happen. This would. That was a big thing through it, and it comes out in the book is that the positive attitude. Sometimes the it felt like the negative energy in the room was just incredible because it was so depressing and so sad. But you know, nobody wanted to tell us. It would be all right. There's a um, there's a story in the book that actually came from uh, uh, one of Erica's cousins when they were dealing with their own son, their daughter with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And um, it's about uh, taking a trip, uh, like you plan your whole life that uh, you want to take a trip to Italy. You learn the language, you get the clothes, get the clothes right the, for the climate. You eat the food. You know what's best. You plan your route. Everything you do, you pack your clothes and and all your maps and you get on that plane and when the plane lands you get off the plane and you're in amsterdam you're not in italy um and they they explain this uh, to us but amsterdam's a nice place you can learn to live there yeah the food's not the same the climate's different the language is different um but but you can live you can be happy in amsterdam it can be a beautiful place right and that kind of mentality really came out and it's, and it's true now with you know with the strides dylan made makes every day he still has deficits and you know may always have deficits but but we can be happy with what he has and we can enjoy him one of the interesting things that we kind of encountered we just recently uh went to breckenridge um for the beoc breckenridge education outdoor center and uh dylan got to do an adventure camp with three other boys that also had brain injuries 
And one of the very bizarre things that occurred that us as parents, when we got to be around other parents with children with brain injuries, all of these boys were approximately the same age, uh, 19 to 21. And for every time that we heard, you can't ever predict a brain injury, no brain injury is the same, like everything's different. The boys, ironically, had a very similar type deficiencies, even though all of their injuries happened in different ways. Um, So that was something that was kind of fascinating, um, but also really kind of alleviating in the sense that, you know, we can make a life like this. Yeah. Yeah. Among those, you know, it's not, TBIs are not that common that, you know, Dylan has a friends right. here or anybody. <laughs> There's a couple local boys we we keep in contact with that that uh, you know are going through the same thing, um, but that support circle's small. So to see these these boys all interact, and not only that, even bigger that our, our, the parents could interact and also not be nervous for, for their son's going to say something silly or because uh, that's one of Dylan's deficits is like a sort of a maturity thing. He might say something inappropriate, yell it out. Um, he went through a stage where he would tell, have to say everybody who passed him, he'd have to tell them that he loves them. Uh, right. so he, stopped- he, went, he, he went through accents. He would do, he would only speak in like an Irish accent, yeah. um, <laughs> or Spanish. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it was interesting. Yeah, I've uh, I recently talked with um oh a uh, brain injury you know support group uh, mentor down here. She's actually on the front range, and she was saying her thing is like laughter. She will laugh at the absolute most inopportune times, and you know some people will look at her like, "What are you doing?" And whereas it, her husband said to her, "I'd rather have you laugh than cry." So I mean, it's just you know yeah these 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 little ticks that uh, we can get after brain injury. That um I love how you two have. Again, flip the script on, you know, the, the analogy of uh, flying to, you know, Spain and ending up in Amsterdam. That, yeah, it's not what I expected, but here I am. I'm going to make are. the most of it. and But not just make the most of it. That there's, there's also some, well, there's new experience and, you know, maybe new even, you know, beauty in that all. I mean, it, it might sound weird to say, but um, uh, I, I guess... What I want to know more is, so Paul, you kept on journaling, um, you know, all the way in, into Craig and, it, and then it turned into a book. Erica, did you ever keep a journal? Did you ever have a way to, you know, go through you know, your thoughts and emotions and your journey as you were doing this? You know, a lot of mine um, could be handled a little bit different, even though I actually do love to write and I do love journaling and what have you, but I was able to be home. So I had the support of like my mother and my sister. And I remember you know, we had, Dylan had, I have two children that are, um, one of them is 19 and one of them is 15. And they were, gosh, when Dylan got injured, so 15 and 11 at the time. And Mm -hmm. I didn't want them to see me breaking down. So I would go call my sister on the floor of my closet crying and just vent and get it out. Um, because I didn't want to break down in front of the other children, which looking back on it, I don't know if that's good or bad, um, but, you know, you just kind of fit, you don't know what to do, you know. Yeah, yeah. So both of you found, like you said, found the ways to manage what you were going through in ways that, um, well, I would say as an outsider, it seems as though it went a long way towards, well, helping Dylan get what he needed, which was have two strong parents around him at the same time. And, and then plus, you know, all the other family and friends that he had kind of, you know, being that you guys were the catalyst to get people rallying around Dylan and his recovery. Um, it's just a, it's a pretty incredible story. I mean, it's, um, Oh, here, just a second. Zoom is telling me that I've only got two minutes left on this meeting. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to have to send you, I'll send you guys another link because I want to keep talking. I want to keep this going. I don't think we've touched on, um, well, I, I definitely want to talk about Breckenridge and some of the more experiences that you guys had there, especially with, you know, meeting other families that have, kids of the exact same age um yeah uh definitely and uh, there's more to talk about about craig too and how that journey went so yeah of course here well let me go ahead and i will send you a new link and we'll hop on that one and we'll have another you know 40 minutes or whatever to go i think it'll take us maybe another 30 minutes to wrap up okay okay all right all right guys hey really appreciate it hate to interrupt us but we will get right back to it let me send you that uh, new link um here. you got it. i'll shoot it off to you we're, we're not kicked off this one yet
Uh, Let me send it to you. Um, And then, you know, I might add a little bit of something about my own experience. You know, it would be interesting to put my parents in touch with you too. Because my accident was pretty similar to um, uh, what Dylan had. I I wrecked on a snowboard, hit a tree. Oh. Uh, Yeah. And, uh, you know, luckily I did not have the... um, I, I managed to mostly miss the tree with my head and instead hit my arm and my leg on it. So, you know, the rest of my body took the brunt of the uh, uh, the collision. Yeah, that's what's a little different with Dylan from a lot of other TBIs mm-hmm. is that the way he fell, it was behind his left ear is where he impacted the street. And that was really his only injury. I mean, yeah, he there were some bones that broke there right behind the ear and mm-hmm. pokes now a little bit or something, but pretty minor except for the you know severe traumatic brain injury he didn't have a lot of other you know a lot of other tbis that we talked to have you know, broken bones and and other things to deal with not just the brain injury and with dylan it was kind of just the brain injury yeah yeah because there's usually like you know a car accident related or something like that you know getting smashed up inside of you know something else so Erica, yeah, you like you said, you had a different way of uh, you know managing things than uh, Paul did. Um, now talk about you know when you when you got back to Craig, because um, like you said, Craig best in the world, and it really does have that reputation for a good reason. Um, talk about getting Dylan out there. You know what was he like when you finally got him out to Craig? You know was he was he interacting again? Was he you know able to you know move at that point, or did that come later? So he did, he, he reached the stages where he could uh, interact. He was tracking with his eyes. He was doing some arm movement. He could hold um, a tennis ball. He could hold yeah. a tennis ball. Yeah, sure. um, I, I, the, the therapist, when we were at uh, the Kaiser Hospital, would come in and help him sit on the edge of the bed, and he could pick his head up for, you know, I remember counting, you know, five seconds, ten seconds was a big deal. He holding his head up by himself. Um, so, you know, that's about where he was when when he went to Craig now. Um, because it is, you know, a, a flight away. He, he was taken on a, on a special plane, uh, uh, air ambulance uh, out there. And his mom went with him on that trip. And we decided we were going to set up. Craig had their own visitation rules in COVID. Their rule at the time was one person, uh, either me or her, uh, could be with him from 8 in the morning to 8 at night. And then, you know, at night, they, they're they take over but um and for us obviously that's a couple states away so it was yeah so <laughs> we required a plan what we ended up doing is we took two week shifts so she went out the first two weeks and she was with him every day 8 a.m to 8 p.m and then we had a we got an apartment near craig uh the day set up for us to help us get it and uh our daughter gabby uh she was about 21 at the time i believe um and she was in college at Sac State, but they were on COVID, you know, uh, so everything was video. So she moved out there, basically, and she lived in that apartment. And then she would kind of care for us when we were out there. So um, we'd get up, get to, get to 8 a.m., get to the hospital to be with Dylan all day when we when we walked in the door she'd have dinner ready for us and we could unwind talk to her you know decompress a little bit and go to sleep get up and do it again for two straight weeks and then and then we switch again um so the first time when he left to go there that was the first time in 13 weeks that i hadn't been with him uh you know for a big part of the day yeah Yeah. it was it was horrible right i i felt like i was not doing anything um, even though there was nothing to do really, you know, and he was in the best place. That's what, what, what made it easier to, to deal with, but you still have that feeling like, man, what's going on. I, you know, I was used to being by his side constantly to this. I got to wait two weeks to go see him. And it was hard for Paul to kind of adjust back to normal life, albeit work, family, household things, because it's one thing that never leaves your mind, right? He's constantly worried about Dylan as we all were, but it's, you know, things, things have to continue. And it was if that the first time he left to go to Craig and Paul couldn't be with him was very, very hard for him emotionally. He didn't sleep well. You know, he didn't eat well. It was just hard for him to be worrying about him states away. And so, but, but, how, yeah, how long, how long was that first day at Craig? So that, um, so, so we went in and we, we started doing the, the two week, uh, uh, trips with, with me mm-hmm. and his mom. Oh, he was at Craig a total of four and a half months. Okay. 
Um, so when we first got there, he started programming and, you know, if you know anything about the Craig program, the amount of therapies you go to is just incredible. And, and we, as the parent, we go along, right? So, so for, I believe for all the TBIs, if somebody's there with them, they go along to all the therapies. So mm-hmm. when we were there, every single therapy, physical therapy, speech, OT, um, we went along and I got, I participated. I got to see what they were doing and Dylan was, was getting better. Um, he was progressing. You were, you were seeing improvements with all the wonderful equipment that they have and then their their knowledge of what to do and how to treat them you know the the doctors were tinkering with some meds now to help him wake up uh, they seemed to be working uh you know we were we sort of were making that progress that we were dreaming about that we could possibly make um when really then he started suffering some some setbacks like i talked about before now he'd be at this far and then we headed back and then we would end up taking him to therapies and, and he would really not be awake the entire time. The entire thing, yeah? yeah. Now to their credit, they still worked with him. If, if they could, they could strap him in machines to make it like he was walking, even though he, he was completely asleep. unresponsive. Yeah. He looked like he was asleep. Um, but they, they kept his muscles working. They kept working with him. They taught us how to take him, um, some extra time outside of therapy and, and strap him into a little uh, bicycle machine that would actually, uh, it was computerized and it would pedal for him if he, if he stopped pedaling, but it would get his legs moving and, and, and keep him going. Um, so what they found out then, well, they decided that, you know, it might be, there's something called a, a sunken brain syndrome and, mm-hmm. and you, you get it when your skull plates have been out for a long time. Cause at this point he's still in a helmet, uh, everywhere he goes and, and has both skull plates out. Um, so we, he had to be transferred to a Kaiser facility in Colorado and there they, 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 uh, shipped his original, uh, uh, skull plates from the hospital here out to Colorado. And then he under, underwent a surgery to have them put back in, um, which was uplifting to us because yeah, he, we he looked we, normal again. Yeah. Right. He had these, the terrible sunken, yeah, yeah. And always had a helmet on and now he, had, you know, his head was shaped right. Uh, he looked good and, and, you know, there was a few days because of the surgery, but then he started waking up and it looked like, man, this is really something you know, we, we had put a lot of faith in this that we wanted him. All right. Maybe when he's back together, right. We can really start to make the progress. And, um, unfortunately that's, that's when it fell off and that was hard. Um, it ended up, he was diagnosed with an infection in, in the skull plates. Um, so he was completely unresponsive for, uh, uh, days and then it turned into weeks. They he went back into surgery, had them removed, and, and then, then he had, had to undergo like yeah. four to six weeks, six, weeks. six to eight weeks, yeah, with six, them out yeah. um, before they could even attempt to do anything to put them back in. So it was and, just a waiting game. And during that time, he was really not responsive. He was even in the journal. I said, "Wait, we came to the best place in the world. I'm watching other TBIs get better. Why not Dylan? Right? Um, why not?" uh him uh then um uh but they kept you know craig they don't stop they keep on going I, they've seen and dealt with everything and you know they gave us their, their mantra if you've seen one brain injury you've seen one brain injury uh so they can't <laughs> tell you what your road's going to look like what your journey's going to be like you just keep going you keep pushing him uh we did the six weeks and again I've at the time I was kind of getting frustrated because I felt like we weren't getting the full benefit of Craig. I, I literally watching other people come in that look just like Dylan and then they're walking down the hallways in front of his room and Dylan's still comatose. You know, he's not not responding to anything. So it was in ways frustrating, but to see the Craig staff continue to work with him and every time when I'm there or when his mom's there, we're there with him. Uh so whether it's massages or stimulation or Anything they can do, we're doing it with them. And so we're kind of an unofficial uh, master's course here on how to deal with TBIs, let alone the physical care. You know, we, we learn how to tube feed him because he was um, that's how he was fed. We learn how to change his catheter, how to bathe him, how to do his bowel program. Right. Mm-hmm. And everything during this four and a half months, we're learning it. Now, I want him to get better, but it's just not happening there. It's that um, we wait the six weeks and he gets um, prosthetic skull plates put in. And as soon as he gets those in, he goes, he has some seizures. And this is the 
the first time he's really had seizures um, that we were aware of. So that's a, that's another setback. Um, he, um, you know, we, we met some incredible people uh, during the journey. And one of them came when he was having these seizures, the hospital he was in, the Kaiser facility to get the skull plates in, uh, went into COVID shutdown. So they had to move him. Dylan had a private room with low lights and cool temperatures, all these things that are good because he needs when we first had that kind of surgery, you need very little stimulation. Mm-hmm. So they wanted everything as quiet and removed as possible. Well, when we the COVID shutdown, they moved everybody off that floor that he was in the ICU. And he ended up in the needle natal intensive care unit of the hospital. So it was a room designed for babies. Uh, and he ended up sharing a room. Uh, it was one big room and they just put two beds in there. So he shares the room with another uh, a gentleman. And that gentleman ends up, he's in serious condition himself. And he ends up having a code blue alert where he stopped breathing. So there people are rushing in the room, you know, they're loud, yeah, they're bringing, yeah. they're saving his life. Right. But Dylan's supposed to be getting low stimulation and this is like 30 people in the room. Right. Um, so it, it was taking a bad situation and making it even, even worse. Um, he did uh, suffer seizures a couple times, uh, but eventually they, they were able to medicate him and, and get him done, uh, get him to stop. And then uh, he transferred back to Craig. Now, now he had been there about four months at this point. Mm-hmm. And when we sent him, when Craig sent him over to the Kaiser facility to get the prosthetics in, um, they did mention to me that they were a little afraid Kaiser might not let him even come back to Craig. And that was another time when um, I didn't handle that news well <laughs> because, you know, having gotten the full benefit, I felt like, you know, we're still waiting for Dylan to make this miraculous uh recovery because he's at craig hospital and now we have a chance now maybe he'll wake up he has the prosthetics in you know now maybe we're on the road um they did they did let him transfer back but they only gave him two more weeks so um he was still basically recovering from that surgery and when we brought him home he was i mean we had to go buy an ambulance van or a wheelchair sorry a wheelchair van um because he was in a wheelchair and we had to modify our home and the floors in it so we could get him in the doorways. And he had a Hoyer lift. He had a hospital bed. I mean, he was, it was a whole different way to live. He was still largely unresponsive. Even all those, what, seven, eight months now it is um, later. Uh, And so while, while there was some improvements, you know, it wasn't, we didn't, we didn't really get the big improvement at Craig, um, which was depressing, right? Because that's that's where you want it. But what I didn't realize is they did teach us how to care for him. Mm. We were now it was still COVID. So we kind of got we didn't have as much medical support at home, even as I think we yeah. would under normal circumstances. No, he, he we had, had a nurse come once a week. Once a week. And then it was us, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It was either he was either here at our house. So we set up two houses for him. He was here at our house or he was at his mom's house and they were caring for him then. Um, and and he was 24-hour care, uh, you know, 100% from the tube feeds to the bowel programs to to everything. And yet we also wanted him to have therapies. So in the beginning, uh, they would send, I think he would get two hours a week therapy. We, we went from Craig where we had eight hours a day. Well, and the two hours weren't really two hours because Dylan often wouldn't participate. So they would be here anywhere between 20 and 40 minutes and that's twice a week. So it was, mm. he was largely nothing. Right. So it, so it fell to us. So we had been there, right. We'd been through this wonderful Craig program and we saw what they were doing. We didn't have their awesome equipment, but we, you know, we weren't going to let it go. So every thing we could do for therapy for him all the time we did from, from speech therapy to get him to talk to, um, you know, have him just track. Uh, he loved to watch videos, especially a video of his dog. Um, so sometimes he'd be completely unconscious, even at Craig, but if you played a picture, a video and his dog was barking, uh, Baxter was running around barking, it would make him open his eyes and he would follow that, that phone around and, and well, focus on it. And then we found it. that he really liked music. He would respond to That's music. Right. So a kind of funny segue is that now Dylan is obviously improved and he's doing much better. He still has deficiencies, of course, but one of his favorite things to do is sing full volume um, any song that comes on or commercial or what have you. It's, uh, uh, yeah, 
<laughs> at all times. Yeah, at in the car, times. at home, anywhere. <laughs> he just loves to sing and 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 learns the words to songs really quick. Um, <laughs> but for his for his therapy, we just kept. Um, I said we kept doing little things. We got some donations. Uh, something called a standing chair where we could transfer. Yeah. We learned to transfer him from. Um, from a hospital bed to his wheelchair. We learned that at Craig. Uh, we learned how to use a Hoyer lift. Uh, and then we could also transfer him from his wheelchair to this standing chair. And then you would pump, pump it, it up. Yeah. And it would, this chair would force him up like he was standing. Uh, and you kind of strapped him in there. And so he would put some weight on his feet and stuff like that. And that's really what we started with. We would with. try to get him to watch a video or two. So he would stand up for, you know, probably like five minutes. And that was you know, grueling for him, really. Right. But little by little, he started doing better. And then, uh, you know, we would have the professional therapists when they did come, you know, they could give us other ideas, things to do, things that we, we saw them doing at, at Craig. We started with him and, and slowly um, over the months, um, he continued to to improve. Now, I do have to say when when he first got home, I think he came home in like November sometime. Or December, mm -hmm. December. Um, he was home only home for a few weeks, and he started vomiting. So at first, uh, I had the wheelchair van at my house. So his mom called me and said, "Come, I think he needs to go to the ER. I don't know why he's vomiting." So I thought it was a little silly. Really, I'm like vomiting. I don't know the ER, but we, we, we don't know. He can't tell you anything. Day, so we thought he was car sick. Yeah. That's right. Mm. Um, okay, I'll I come get him, and it was me and Gabby again. We were in the van, starting to drive him to the ER, and he vomits again now in the van, and it's on him, and it's in the van. So I just pulled over to the side of the road, and I called his mom, and I said, "Call nine one one, just have an ambulance come. I can't even get him there, right? So I'll I'll meet you back at your house." Well, when I showed up, it was some of the same crew that had helped Dylan yeah. uh, originally. Uh, and so they, they kind of knew some background of him, uh, and they, when he took his vitals, they actually determined that I, I was going to go to a Kaiser hospital, which was maybe 40 minutes away. They said, no, his blood pressure and heart rate are so bad that he has to go to so the low, nearest yeah. medical facility. Um, so they took him to a different hospital in, in Folsom that was closest. And to make the long story short, it turns out he had blood clots all around his lungs. Oh. Uh, yeah, in his legs and lungs. Uh, severely. Also, they did a CT scan of his brain and he had a bleed on the brain. So this hospital in Folsom told, tells me we're not equipped for this. We can't handle him. But of course, it's COVID. Um, so no, like UC Davis, where he was originally treated, they're not taking, they can't take patients right now. They're closed. hospital in Sacramento or yeah. surrounding area close that would, that even had a bed available. So they give me all the bad news and I have to sit there with him in the ER while they call to find a hospital. And eventually they found one in, um, Vallejo. yeah, Vallejo, like an hour away, uh, that would take him and has the, you know, the expertise to, to deal with what he needed. Um, so they had an ambulance come back again and drive him there. And I had to drive down and meet him. Um, now we did, uh, we, we had some trouble getting in the, like the hospital, but, um, again, get down there. It's their COVID rules. Uh, and they say at first I wasn't allowed to see them, uh, to go to be with him. So, you know, you had to fight that red tape too, uh, as to, and now it became, um, I was equipped with the wording my son had given me that, you know, he, I'm his caregiver. I have to be there because Dylan can't speak for himself. Um, they would have no idea all he's been through uh, showing up at a strange hospital. Um, so, you know, they have to let me in. And then eventually they, they did. So, yeah, and like you said, you've just been riding this like world's like longest, tallest, most gut wrenching roller coaster. Every time things seemed like they were getting just a little bit better, then they'd fall back and get a little bit better, and then they'd fall back. And through it all, still dealing with the COVID restrictions. The yeah, it's almost like the insurance thing, right? Just another thing to have to leap over, um, right. just to get your son the help that he needs right there in the moment. Um, now. Fast forward to, like you said, Breckenridge Outdoor Education Center. How did you make that connection? You know, at, at what point did you realize, all right, Dylan's good enough to actually go out and, you know, do some of these, like, outdoor activities, you know, get on a ropes course? And Well, we, we had sent a video to one of his um, 
one of the Craig therapists of what was Dylan doing? Might, might have been taking steps, I believe. I think he was walking. Yeah. And we sent it to her and she said, you know what? We have, a, you know, a camp coming up. We would love for Dylan to join us. It was a couple months away at that point. And we think he's good enough to be able to come. And then what they were giving us a list of activities, which was ropes, cores, whitewater rafting, hiking, bicycling, uh, kayaking. All these things were like, okay, <laughs> this isn't going to happen. But we went and it was incredible. Yeah, really. And Dylan had gotten to the point, you know, he got out of the wheelchair. He used a walker for a while. He used a cane for a while. And now uh, he, the most part, uh, yeah, he's at the them, yeah. short distances. He walks without without a cane or anything. Um, so still unsteady, but still a hike in, yeah. in Breckenridge. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know that. This, well, and know, Dylan often just work. decides he doesn't want to do stuff. So we're yeah, like, we're going yeah, yeah. to get him there. And then he's going to be like, no, I'm not going on a hike. He was so great. He did everything and the staff there, the, I know they, they call it adaptive sports, but the things that they think of in order to get one of the boys that was at the camp was fully in a wheelchair and had arm and leg deficiencies where he couldn't use them. And they were able to, to put this kid in a life or being in a, in a raft with a modified chair and what have you. And all the staff got around and picked him up and put him in and carried him up on the bank when we, when we, you know, pulled over and had lunch and it was, I just was in awe at what they could do. It was really, really cool. Yeah, they they truly made it like there were no disabilities. Like every boy did everything. And not only they had the physical equipment and know-how and how to work it, but they had these great attitudes and the and and just I mean, you know sometimes dylan needs that he just needs the extra encouragement um you know his deficiencies are are along uh, those lines a lot it has to do with you know immaturity kind of things or needs to be talked into doing something or um and and they just had all the patience in the world and all the know-how in the world it was it was uh just great to to watch them work with him and at times they could take over for us for once we didn't have to do anything I, we could sit and watch we could join in we could take pictures and videos which we did a lot of um yeah it ended up being a a wonderful trip for them and um you know they all we all stayed in the house together we kind of had a common area the boys could go to and we really thought Dylan would stay in his room most of the time. That's what he does at home. He likes to be by himself, maybe on his Xbox now. Mm -hmm. Phone. And no, when we were there, he was out in that social area all the time. Playing talking. games. Yep. They, did a, they did what they called a college night one night um, where they sent and paid for all parents to go out to dinner um, and leave the boys with the staff. And they played games and yeah. just hung out. And it was, <laughs> it was, Really kind of the first time we've ever had Dylan and not had to be with Dylan. And so all of the parents felt that way. It was really incredible. Yeah, kind of like shows the journey of, like you were saying, you know, in those first few weeks after the accident, you, you felt lost, Paul, when you couldn't be by his side because that you, you felt like you weren't doing enough. You feel like you two have gotten to the point where now, um, well, Dylan can have his own time and you can have your own time. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. And that they really gave us that feeling. And it, it, it did wake that up inside of us that, you know, we, you know, Dylan's, he'll always be in recovery mode. So, you know, his next steps, we're looking for, for that kind of stuff. What, what sort of educational things can we do with him to, to not only he'll keep improving like he is, but then, you know, improve his quality of life and, and where he wants to be. There's, there's no, uh, we haven't definitely have not come to the end of the journey. So you mentioned that you had, um, a brain injury what what was your healing process like or or where do you where are you at now with it in mm -hmm. terms of deficiencies or whatnot well you know i am very very grateful and very very i guess the only word i can come back to is lucky so i've had several tbis um you know it was starting with sports as a kid you know got knocked out playing soccer woke back up with smelling salts um had a couple snowboarding my worst one was ran into a tree when i was snowboarding probably doing 35 40 miles an hour going down the wow. slope um Hit my head, hit my arm, broke a arm, broke a leg, and I was in the hospital for maybe two days. And I was incredibly lucky that I was mostly with it. Um, I was able to pretty much wake up, come back out of it, uh, walked out of the hospital two days later, um, you know, with uh, with crutches and wheelchair help and all that. But um, 
these days, you know, my, my recovery is, uh, I still do the sports that I love for the most part, which again, I'm just very grateful for because living up in the mountains, it's, you know, the reason that I live up here, uh, you right. know, all the things you guys were doing at Breckenridge Outdoor Education Center. Yeah. I love doing on my own personal time. Um, and that's why it's so cool to see them bring in, you know, people with all sorts of disabilities, no matter where they're at, where they're from, what they're in, what apparatus they have, that they can, you know, get them out on a whitewater raft or on a ropes course. It's all just so cool. Um, and I've just been very lucky that mine, you know, my, my physical uh, abilities were not very impacted by my brain injury. It's more the, the mental capacity, you know, still trying to keep, um, you know, living on my own, holding a, a job. I work at a radio station. Um, and so, you know, sometimes uh, trying to... Um, trying to live with the brain injury and the, you know, the impacts that I have mostly memory stuff, you know, remembering names, places, things I've said, which can get you in trouble on a radio station, right? You're, you're supposed to, <laughs> you're supposed to talk for a living. And then all of a sudden you're repeating yourself and you just kind of got to laugh it off and it becomes almost part of the shtick. But really I'm like, Oh wow. I just let my TBI show there a little bit. <laughs> um, it's it, it, for me, it's just a little bit more of a, um, trying to manage my own symptoms, um, while still living kind of, you know, the, the life that I, that I had wanted for myself, you know, living independently up in the mountains. Um, and, uh, I, I guess one thing that I've always wanted to do is go back and talk with my parents a little bit more about what we were talking about today. Those minutes, hours, days immediately after my accident. Cause my mom has told me this plenty of times. She was like, Phil, you realize that you were this close to me wiping your ass for the rest of your life. Yeah. 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 And we kind of reconcile that was going to be our life too. So. Mm -hmm. Right. We did, you know, we had a, a long, long way of thinking that my, you know, what if this is it? What if this is as far as he comes? And, and now I think we know, don't ever say that because it's never it for him. There's little gains. And sometimes, you know, he'll go, we have that same arrangement still. He spends a week at his mom's house and a week here at our house. So sometimes he'll go away for a week and come back. I'll be like, Hey, he's, he's he's doing a lot better. Yeah. Well, we've done stuff too. We've done things like hyperbaric chamber. We've done, Hmm. um, like therapy. We've done stem cells. So we, it's a constant learning process as to what is available as far as technology and, and growth that way. Yeah, and, and like you said, it still um, feels like sky's the limit for his recovery. That you know, that there's still things to try, and he's still improving. How do you feel about you know that rate of improvement, or how do you feel as though you two have grown as you're going through this recovery with him? Because I, I mean, your journeys are tied together inexplicably. It's it just. It, I think we we have definitely gotten more patient obviously um live with a little bit more grace and understanding um and because it can be very frustrating in certain elements and yet it it is difficult in relationships and what have you to now change the dynamic but we have done very very well together paul and i are really good communicators so that has been something that has kind of gotten us through navigating this new life it it almost sounds weird to say, but in some ways it comes with some guilt. Um, uh, you know, Dylan is getting better, and we were at that bad stage. But I, I know I have friends and other family members that lost their loved one. Mm-hmm. You know, and we were really close with that with Dylan, and but yet he lived, and yet here he is, and you know he's singing at full volume in his room. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, walking, going to their. Uh, get a second cup of coffee, yeah. right? Which I'm trying to teach him to use the coffee maker now. But but showing these improvements, some people didn't get that. So in a way, we are, you know, we're extremely lucky to be where we are. The dire things that those first surgeons told us, you know, have didn't come true. You know, he he made this recovery. You get to remember to tell him that you love him every night. Um, you know, it, so it really is special 
here in Amsterdam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I agree with both of you wholeheartedly. Like I said, my own personal journey, I think that's one thing that's it's given to me is, you know, a little bit more patience with myself, a little bit more grace with myself, and also those loved ones who, you know, stick by me and I realize have also, you know, um, they've been through this as well. You know, that it, the, the journey is not my own. You know, when I get frustrated with myself or when I have, you know, those, uh, you know, mood swings, stuff that I never went through before, you know, having a brain injury, you know. I was always, parents always tell me, friends always told me, yeah, you were just a happy-go-lucky guy. I don't think I ever saw you mad. These days, they're like, you know, it's a notable difference, and I don't know where it came from. Well, I I would say brain injury is probably part of it. (laughs) You know, the the weird things it does to the chemicals in your brain, you you just never know what to expect. But um, trying to recognize those things in myself and also, you know, Uh, like you were saying, Paul, a little bit of that guilt, a little bit of that survivor's guilt. I've got a handful of friends that I know have died in, you know, recreational, mostly accidents up here, but also car accidents, Uh, people that I was close with that I realized, you know, they don't have the chance to recover. Um, So I've got to do the best I can with my chance to recover because I've got the chance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then we do, um, you know, we, reach out to other people uh, if we can, because now we've been through something, right? And if, like we learned there in Breckenridge or, but whenever we hear about another TBI or there's some Facebook groups I'm part of, we try to volunteer the information to let them know. There were, and some of my time in the hospital there, we we mentioned that family that gave us the three-prong approach. Um, I I had other people reach out. Like uh, I know, I don't even remember her name, but I talked to a, a mom early on whose son was in a longboarding accident. She was in the Seattle area. Um, but she was just some of the things she was able to say that they had the dire uh, diagnosis. And it was it was three years later now when their son was walking and talking, um, you know, just to give my brain that kind of hope that, hey, you know, she went through this and, and her son got better, um, you know, made improvements. Maybe there is hope in there. So we try to, you know, pay it forward a little bit or do, do that kind of thing is there anything we can we can help out with as dylan progressed and got through uh needing certain equipment like that standing chair then we donated it we donated a hospital bed um wherever we could give it to help somebody Mm -hmm. else we tried to to pass it on to them you know craig hospital had bought us this awesome uh really expensive shower chair for him to to transfer dylan in and out when we first got home because he couldn't stand or anything Mm -hmm. but eventually anymore so we we gave it to a to a nonprofit that could get it to somebody that needed it um so you know it really makes us thankful that way that all the from all those meals to all that equipment that we yeah, needed a little bit pay it forward yeah when we when we needed it people were there and, and we try to do that for people if we can yeah it's it's a long hard road but you don't have to walk it alone it's yeah. yeah, most definitely. Well, Paul, Erica, thank you so very much for making time to talk about your journey. Like I said, this is just a, such a very unique story and a unique um, perspective to you know, hear from the parents who were there from the moment that uh, Dylan's life changed to the moment today that it's still changing and he's getting back to, like you said, singing tone deaf to whatever song happens to be on the commercial. <laughs> I, I love hearing it. Hey, one of these days, I mean, I would, I'd love to get uh, you know Dylan on uh, the podcast, uh, you know, whenever it is that he can come on and sing for us <laughs> oh yeah he, he will, he will. <laughs> <laughs> great well thank you again so much to both of you too and uh, remind me paul one more time uh, the name of the book uh it is uh be at my side a father's journey through his son's tbi all right and is it published can people find it oh yeah it's on amazon great yeah. All right. Well, so look it up, everybody. Hey, thank you again for being here on the podcast. Loved hearing about you. And um, yeah, stay in touch. Can't wait to hear uh, where Dylan's going next. Thank you very much. Of course. Thanks so much.